0: If you open with me in your Bibles to Genesis 12, we're going to be looking at Abraham uh, tonight and uh, several, several stories from Abraham's life that teach us about worship. We're in a series uh, on worship, and we're walking and tracing this theme of worship through the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. We're still in Genesis Uh, this evening. Eventually we'll make it to Revelation. And then there's some good stuff, there's some good stuff in between as well. So um, I was going to look at, my my plan earlier in the week was to look at these moments from Abraham's life, Isaac's life, and Jacob's life, where they built altars to the Lord. And uh, this afternoon, as I was just seeking the Lord and praying, I, I really felt to zero in on these, uh, a sequence of events in Genesis 12 and 13 and, and to really focus in on Abraham's life and specifically the times that he built altars to the Lord and the times that he worshiped the Lord and the times that he called on the Lord and the events that surround that and how that would speak to us tonight. And so, as you'll recall, we've been looking at two ideas about worship. The first one is that God calls us as his people to live a lifestyle of worship, to live all of our lives unto the Lord as worship. And we look at Romans chapter 12 that says to submit even our own bodies to the Lord, and that when we do that, when we obey the Lord, when we live a lifestyle of obedience to God— that the Bible calls that worship. And so the great example of that that I've used over and over is as we endeavor to do everything to the glory of God, we endeavor to do everything uh, under the word of God is the example of my brother Mitchell after that first sermon. And he was in the drive-through at Mama Margie's thinking, how do I I go through the drive-through for the glory of God? And I know that's kind of an extreme example But I I truly believe that that is worship when we live every moment with the Lord always before us, with the Lord and, and His glory as the ultimate aim for our lives. And so that's worship as a lifestyle. And then we've also, last week we looked at worship, the act of worship. And we saw Cain and Abel and they brought an offering to the Lord and one offering was received and one was rejected. And there's a certain way to worship God that our worship will be received and a certain way that we can worship God and, and have our worship rejected. And we, we saw that last week. And now as we move forward in Genesis to Abraham, this is a story that many of us will be familiar with. Uh, Abraham, the, the great patriarch of our faith. Uh, that all of us have been grafted into, even in Christ, grafted into the blessing of Abraham, the promises that God made to Abraham. They all have their ultimate fulfillment in Christ. And so even those of us who are not physical descendants of Abraham by birth are spiritual descendants of Abraham by faith, grafted into the blessing of Abraham. Abraham was a worshiper of God, and we're going to see that tonight. But he did not start out that way. In fact, as you look uh, at the beginning of Abraham's life, he is called out of a place called Babel. His his family, his his father Terah and himself, they were not worshipers of God. They were idolaters. They did not serve the true and living God. In fact, they worshiped idols. And so Abraham's story starts with him, not as a man who builds altars to God, but as a man who worships false gods. And we, we see that in, in the end of chapter 11, but God had something better for Abraham, just as God has something better for all of us, that he would call us out of darkness, out of this dark existence as he called Abraham, and he has called us to walk in the light of his son Jesus. And so as we study the life of uh, the, the, this first part of these first few stories of Abraham, um, I believe it will speak to us as far as worship goes as well. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. Speak to us uh, as we dive into uh, this great theme of, of being worshipers, of, of living our lives as worship unto you, and, and also these moments where we worship you uh, as an act of worship. And Lord, I pray that you would use your word to speak to our hearts tonight and draw us, even as we sang tonight, draw us close to you, Lord, that we would, we would walk closely with you in fellowship, just as Abraham was in fellowship with you and, and you even called Abraham your friend, Lord, that we would walk in that kind of closeness and relationship with you. Help us to learn from his example Tonight, as even your word says that these were written down for us as an example so that we might learn from his life and walk close with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I'm going to walk through some verses, we'll summarize some things, we'll pull out some points, and hopefully the Lord will speak to us tonight. So uh, Genesis chapter 12, uh, verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Abraham... Or to Abram. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to constantly be mixing that up. We know that Abram's name was changed to Abraham. So I'll probably call him Abraham the, the majority of the time. But here his name is Abram. So the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. And I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Here we see this this moment where God calls Abraham. He, He literally speaks to him. We don't know exactly how he spoke to him. It doesn't tell us if he heard an audible voice or the inward voice and calling of God. However, we do know that God speaks to him. And he calls him, he calls him to leave the place that he's at. He calls him to leave his, his family history of idolatry behind. He calls him out into the unknown. He calls him out to live a life of faith, to follow the leading of God. And he calls him out into a place that he doesn't even tell him where he's going. He says, I'll show you the place after you start following me. After you start obeying me, I will lead you out there. And 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 we see this, this call and this promise that God makes to him. Five times in this passage, God makes a promise. Five times God says, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. And this is just a reminder for us, those of us who walk with God, those of us whom he has called to himself. It's all of grace. It's all of grace. It's all the work of God. God is the one who is doing. God is the one who is calling. God is the one who is promising. God is the one who is acting. And so as God has called called us out in Christ, He is the one who has accomplished salvation for us. It's not our own works. And so all of our relationship with God, it is a grace-based relationship. Abraham, up until this point, has done nothing to deserve the grace of God. Nevertheless, God calls him as an act of his grace. And so Abraham, what does he do? Verse 4 tells us that Abram went out as the Lord God had told him. He obeys God. He obeys God in faith. He steps out in faith. We're told that he brings his nephew with him, Lot. And that he was 75 years old when God called him. So he is, he's, he's, his life is kind of set. You know, by the time you're 75, you're kind of set in some things. You're kind of to the point where you're not really looking to set out on some new adventure with some unknown God. You're kind of settled in, you've kind of got things set. This is my life, this is how things are, this is my home. To sell everything, to pack everything up, to move out into the unknown is a great step of faith. But Abraham is the man of faith. And he lives this life of really worship unto the Lord through his obedience. And so he steps out in faith. In verse 5 it tells us he took Sarah his wife and Lot his brother's son and all of their possessions that they had gathered. The people they had acquired in Haran and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to a place called Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Verse 7, then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So God comes and he speaks to him again. And it tells us, then Abram built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So God comes and speaks to him. After Abraham steps out in obedience, God comes and makes another promise. I'm going to give all of this land to your offspring. The promised land we see the Israelites possess in the book of Joshua as they move into what God had promised them. But here in the place that God appears to him, he builds an altar. He sets up a place for worship at the place that God spoke to him, at the place that God appeared to him. I'm going to bring us back to this point here in a little bit tonight. But it says from there he moved on. He didn't stay at that place. He, he moved on. Verse 8. To the hill country east of Bethel. And there he, pinched, he, there he pitched his tent. I've watched this YouTube video way too many times of someone mispronouncing this. And I almost did the exact same thing. And just thank God I didn't do that. With Bethel on the, on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord. And called upon the name of the Lord. But he didn't stay there. He continued to journey. And Abraham journeyed on, still going toward the Negeb, which was a desert. And so Abraham builds these altars. He builds these altars to the Lord first at the place God appears to him. Second, he builds an altar in the place that he calls out to God. Now, Abraham, I told you, was previously an idolater. His family legacy was one of idolatry, of worshiping false gods, of worshiping idols. However, God has called him, and he has left his idols behind. He's left his idolatry behind, and and now that God calls him, he's now a true worshiper of God. And likewise, with us, when God calls us out of the world, we must leave our idols behind. Our idolatry of of all of the things that we worship, all of the things that we were living for before God called us, when God calls us, all of those are moved to second place. All of those things are left behind. All of the things that we lived for before God called us We now live for God. We now worship the true and the living God. And so when God calls us, we leave our idols behind. And we start building these altars to the Lord. We start worshiping the true and the living God. And so this is God calling Abraham. This is Abraham stepping out in faith. This is Abraham living a lifestyle of worship through obedience. This is Abraham worshiping God through acts of worship and building altars. Things are going well. God's promising to bless them. He's saying, look at all this land. I'm going to give it to your descendants. And then in verse 10, it says this. Now there was a famine in the land. A famine in the land. Now, a famine is a severe economic depression. It's a time when the harvest didn't yield its fruit, that possibly there's a drought, that that now it's a severe economic depression. Food is scarce, money is scarce, resources are scarce. It's a time when everything is drying up. It's a time when people are in severe need. It's a time when people are are, are hungry and, and starving. A famine represents the, the bottom of the economy just falling out. It is, a, it, is a, it is a desperate time. There's a famine in the land. Now, from our perspective, this is, should be uh, maybe surprising to us because what had God promised for Abraham? It starts with a B. Blessing. God had promised Abraham... If you follow me, if you will go where I lead you, if you will do what I say, I will what? Bless you. There will be blessings, there will be harvest, there will even be a son. I will, I, will, I will give this land to your offspring even though you have no children yet. Blessing, 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 blessing. And then famine. And again, from our perspective, these two things don't go together. Blessing and severe economic depression. Blessing and I don't know where my next meal is coming from. Blessing and resources are scarce. Food is hard to come by. Do those two things go together in our minds? From our way of thinking, these two things should be on the opposite end of the spectrum. We have God's blessing and fruitfulness and supply and God providing for us. All of our needs met. Blessing, blessing, blessing. And way over here on the other hand is famine, way, way, way over there from our way of thinking. But truly, this is not God's way of thinking. We need to see this. Though from our perspective, we wouldn't equate famine and blessing. Apparently, from God's point of view, these two things go together like this. Right? Because God said, I will bless you if you obey me. And then God brings a famine. Now, Isaiah 55.8 says that God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. And our way of blessing would not include a famine. But apparently God's way of blessing does. We need to see this. We would anticipate if God was bringing his blessing, material wealth and prosperity. But instead, what does Abraham receive? He receives a famine. And truly, guess what this is? What is God doing for Abraham? This is a trial. This is a trial. This is a test. Every trial in our life is a test from God. It truly is. God is testing Abraham's faith. Abraham had responded in faith, and now God is going to put that faith to the test. He's going to put that faith to the test. And genuine faith is always tested. This is what God does. Now again, we would expect God to bring material blessing and prosperity, but instead it tells us God brings a test. And we need to understand and realize that God's ways simply are not our ways. And so if I have put my faith in God, guess what I can expect in my life? A test. I can expect my faith to be tested, tested in all any number of ways. And here Abraham's faith is being tested through a trial. Let me read for you James chapter 1. What James chapter 1, a very familiar passage. Uh, This is, uh, many of you probably even have this passage memorized. Though we have it in our hearts, it it nevertheless needs to be embraced and lived out. It's it's not enough simply to know the word. We need to live it out. James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So when we put our faith in God, when we step out in faith in any number of ways, maybe it's in salvation... Remember, I talked about this morning that sometimes uh, that, that there's there's a message that's preached that if you follow God, everything will be easy in your life. And I said, actually, Jesus says it's the opposite. So maybe we're talking about putting your faith in, in, in salvation and in trusting God, or, or maybe God's been speaking to you. Maybe God's been dealing uh, with you on a certain point and And so you're stepping out in faith, you're believing God, you're trusting Him, and you step out in obedience. And every act of obedience is a step of faith. And so you step out in faith, and then guess what's going to come? A test. A trial to test that faith. And James says, when the trial comes, what should we do? Count it all joy. When you meet various trials of various kinds. Why should we do this? Verse 3, he says, For you know. And it's, it's, it's absolutely imperative that we actually know this. For you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Steadfastness or patience. And then he goes on to say, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So God tests our faith to do what? To perfect us. To perfect us. And so what is God doing for Abraham here as he stepped out in faith and God is testing his faith? What is he doing? He's perfecting him. He's perfecting his faith. He's putting Abraham through the the trial and the fire of affliction to test his faith, to produce perfection, completion, lacking nothing in his life, lacking nothing in his faith. And so if we have put our faith in God, if we have stepped out in obedience, we can expect that our faith in God will be tested. And the purpose of the test is not to reveal something to God as if God needed to learn something. The purpose of the test is truly to reveal something to us, to show us something, to show us something that we need to see in our lives. The trials are God's way of perfecting us and God's way of maturing us and God's way of showing us where we are weak in our faith so that we can grow in our faith. And so I can expect trials, I can expect tests as part of God's blessing in my life. Right? Isn't that what God said? I'm going to bless you, Abraham. I'm going to bless you if you obey me. And God, Abraham obeys God and God sends Abraham a trial. God sends Abraham a test. He says, I'm blessing you, Abraham, with this test. And James says, when that happens, what should we do? We should count it all joy. We should face these tests and these trials with joy because God is perfecting us. What a perspective. Now, I want to I tell you, this is a perspective that the world does not have. This is a perspective that the world simply cannot possess. Because the world lives life without God. The world lives life without the sovereign Lord who's in control of all of the events of our lives. The the world lives their life in total darkness. But we live our lives serving the sovereign God who leads and guides and directs and controls even the winds and the waves obey Him. Even the storms in our life must submit to God. And so if we're going through a test and we're going through a trial, it's not that God has abandoned us. It's not that God has forgotten us. It's not that God has failed us. It's God working in our lives to perfect us as his blessing towards us. That God is perfecting us even through our trials, even through our tests, even through our suffering. So how does Abraham respond to this test? Well, in verse 10, it tells us Abram went down to Egypt to live there, for the famine was severe in the land. Now, did God tell Abraham when he called him, go to Egypt? No, where did God tell him to go? The land of Canaan. And so here, when the test comes, when the trial comes, when the things of life hit the fan, Abraham, the man of faith, his faith falters. His faith is weak in this moment. And he chooses to go to Egypt as his source and his supply. He he doesn't do the, the supernatural thing of trusting in God and expecting God to meet his needs and to supply him. Instead, he does the natural thing. He acts out of fear. He's acting out of the flesh. He doesn't look to God. He doesn't look to seek God, to consult with God. He doesn't build an altar and and search out the will of God. Instead, he puts himself in the driver's seat and he takes his family down to Egypt. And so what do we do when the test comes? It's easy to worship God when everything's going well. It's easy to build altars when God is blessing us in the way that we think of blessing, when things are going well, when the promotion's going great, when, when, when the kids are obeying and, and life is good. It, it's easy to worship God in those times. But what about when we're laid off from work? What about when the kids aren't doing well in school? What about when every single day it seems like the car's breaking down? What about in those times? Here's Abraham's mistake. He doesn't seek God in the famine. Instead, he goes down to Egypt. And the problem compounds itself because as he's heading into Egypt, he tells his wife Sarah, he says, I know that you're very beautiful and when the Egyptians see you, they're going to envy you, they're going to want you for themselves and they're going to kill me. To take you from me. So say to everyone that you are my sister, that it will go well with me. So they concoct this lie, and she comes into the land, and they come in, and somehow she, at, at 65, catches Pharaoh's attention, and Pharaoh says, She's got to be one of my wives. She must have been, I mean, she must have been a looker, you know? She had to be. Abraham knew it. Abraham married up. And he he said they're going to kill me. And he was I mean he was he's right. He's right. They they when they take a look of her, somebody goes and tells Pharaoh, "Hey, you got to see this chick that just rolled into the kingdom." And he he sees her and he says, you know, Who is she? Well, she's this guy's sister. Okay, I want her to be one of my wives. So he brings her into his house when he sees her beauty. Now, again, this God had promised to do what to Abraham? To bless him. God had promised to give the land to his offspring. But here, Abraham is putting himself in the driver's seat. And every single time he does this, it's out of fear and not out of faith. You see, Abraham could have trusted God and said, God, you promised that you would do this for me. And so, Lord, I know that they're not going to do, they can't kill me because your hand is on me and this is what you've promised me. But instead of standing on the promise, he acts in fear. And when we do that, we're not living a life of worship as unto the Lord. We're not living a life of obedience unto the Lord. So they bring her and, and He actually pays Abraham. Pharaoh pays Abraham. So, verse 15: when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt with Abraham, well, with Abraham. And he gave him sheep and oxen and male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. He just loads him up with all of these possessions. Verse 17, it says, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So Pharaoh Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. And so verse 1 of chapter 13, So Abram went up from Egypt with his wife and all that he had and Lot with him into the Negev. He heads back into the wilderness. He heads back into the desert. You see, sometimes sometimes godly people do ungodly things. Just because we serve a perfect Savior doesn't make us perfect. Just because we have been declared a new creation doesn't mean we always live like it. Just because we're clothed in God's righteousness doesn't mean that we don't sin anymore. Sometimes godly people do ungodly things, and this is what Abraham did. And the tables are somewhat turned because godly Abraham, in the end, is rebuked by ungodly Pharaoh. It's the world that's rebuking the men of faith. It's the world system that's looking to him and saying, why did you lie to me? Aren't you supposed to be a man of God? You see, Abraham should have been a witness to God's faithfulness to the surrounding nations. And here he's being rebuked because he's sinned against the nations. And so Abraham heads back into the wilderness, this time embarrassed, ashamed. The first time he stepped out in faith, and this time he's forced into the wilderness as a failure. He failed his wife. He's failed the test. He did not pass this test of faith. And so the question for us is, have we ever, have you ever felt like Abraham? Have you ever had the test and failed the test? I have. I've failed the test. I've I've had my faith tested. I have not passed that test. The, 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 the truth is to move on in our walk with the Lord, to go on and press on with God, we have to pass the tests. And so if we failed the test, guess what? There's another one coming. You're going to have to do a makeup test. There's going to be a makeup exam on the way. But what do we do in these moments? What do we do when we've been tested And we've been found wanting when we haven't passed the test. Because the issue is what you do when you fall. What you do when you fail. You know, the Bible says a righteous man falls seven times, yet he gets up again. What does Abraham do? It's not if we will fall, it is when we will fall, when we will fail. To err is human. Abraham falls. He fails the test. Well, what does he do? Well, verse 2 of 13, it says, Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel. And hear this. This is is where we're going to really bring this home tonight. He went to the place where his tent had been at the beginning. Between Bethel and Ai, Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. So what does Abraham do when he's failed? What does Abraham do as he is embarrassed and ashamed? When he didn't act in faith, but he acted in fear, what does he do? Abraham goes back to the place where he had first met with God. Abraham goes back to the place where he had built an altar to the Lord, an altar that served as a reminder of the promises that God had made to him. Abraham goes back to that place and it says that he called upon the name of the Lord. He returns to a life of worship. He goes back and he begins to worship God again. You see, in the test, in the trial, in the famine, we, we see no evidence that Abraham is seeking God. We see no evidence that Abraham is walking with God. We see no evidence that he is searching out the will of God. It seems as though he's just doing his best and with the intellect and the gifts and the talent that he has. But listen, as followers of Christ, filled with the Spirit of God... We are called to follow God. We are called to walk with God. We're called to be led by the Spirit of God. We're called to seek out the will of God, not to just do what seems best in our own eyes. The book of Proverbs says, there is a way that seems right unto man, and the end is the way of death. If we just rely on our own natural ability and our own natural intellect, we will always ourselves like Abraham did, being rebuked, being rejected, being uh, sent back, being found out in sin. Abraham should have sought the Lord, but the point I'm making tonight is when he came to the place where he realized he had really messed up, he goes back to the place where God had spoken to him. He he returns to that lifestyle of worship. He goes back to the altars that he had built, and he calls on the name of the Lord. After his failure, after his doubt, he returns to renew his faith. Egypt is in the rearview mirror. He, He wants a fresh start. And for all of us, when we fail the test, and we will fail tests in life, we need to understand that when that happens, it's time for us to go back to the Lord. To renew our faith and our fellowship with Him. You know, a few weeks ago, I, I told the, we, we looked at the parable of the prodigal son. And how he had gone and he had ruined and wasted his father's inheritance. But what did he do when he came to himself? What did he do? He, he went back to his father's house. He went back home. And what did he find when he went there? He found the open arms of the father. He found the willing embrace of the father. He found a father who was looking for his son to come home. You see, the enemy loves to lie to us and tell us that because we've fallen, because we've failed, because we've messed up, that there's no future for us with God. But the Bible says that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That there is a Savior waiting with open arms for all of our faults, for all of our failures, for all of the many times that we have failed him. He never fails us. And the Bible even says that when we are faithless, he remains faithful through all of our faults, through all of our failures. But we must go back to him. We must go back to him. And that's what Abraham does. He goes back. He, he, he makes, if you will, this what, what the world would call a walk of shame. Truly, it's a walk of blessing, the pathway back to God, the pathway back to fellowship. He goes to the place where God had spoken to him, the place where he had built the altar. Now, we know that as Christians, there's not a holy place that we go to. We saw that in John chapter 4 where Jesus says, the time is coming and is now here where we will not worship at a time and a place, but that we will worship in spirit and in truth. And so we we don't go back to a holy place. We go to a holy person. We don't have to go to a physical place to renew our covenant with God and to renew fellowship. We go to the source. We go to Jesus. We go to the author and the perfecter of our faith. We go to the one who is interceding for us 24-7. We go to the one who, who, with whom we have the advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. The one who turns no one away that saves us whenever we call out his name. We don't go somewhere. We run to someone. We run to the foot of the cross. We run to Jesus And so if you have strayed, if you find yourself having strayed or fallen or acting out of fear or acting out of doubt, come back to Jesus. Come back to the author and perfecter of your faith. Come back to the one who saved you by his grace, who will cleanse you by his grace, who will walk with you by grace. It's not that we're saved by grace, but then we maintain our salvation through our works. It's all of grace. It's all of grace. Don't listen to the condemning voice of the enemy that says there's no place for you in the house of God. There's no place for you with Jesus. The place he goes back to is literally called Bethel, the house of God. We need to run back to the house of God when we find ourselves having fallen and messed up. We need to go back to that place of worship. We need to go back to the altars and remind ourselves of what God has spoken to us and promised us. There's this next section here. I don't have time to to get into it, but it's the story where Lot and Abraham grow so wealthy that the land isn't able to support both of their cattle. And so they both have herds and they have cattle and, and they, God blesses them so much that, that they have to part ways that they have to separate. And we know that Lot looks towards Sodom and he, he heads towards Sodom and Gomorrah. Even though he has young daughters, Lot was looking for a good place to raise cattle and he wasn't so concerned about a godly place to raise his kids. And so he sacrifices his kids on the altar of prosperity and he, he raises a great he has a great farm but his children don't serve the Lord I could preach on that for an hour but I won't but I want to draw your attention to one verse here this is after Abraham and Lot separate it's in verse 14 of chapter 13 Verse 14, it says, then the Lord said to Abram, after Lot separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land that you see, I will give you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land and I will give it to you. So Abraham moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. I just want to draw your attention to the point that after Abraham left Egypt, he went back to the place that God had spoken to him, and there he called on the name of the Lord. He called out to God. But God doesn't speak to Abraham until him and Lot Separate until him and Lot separate. And and I don't know that it's that God didn't speak to him or that Abraham just wasn't listening. You know, sometimes there's people in our lives that can keep us from hearing the voice of God people, relationships, events, uh, activities we're involved in. It's not that God is not speaking to us, but it's that we are not listening. We've become distracted. We've become preoccupied. We've allowed something to direct our attention, our gaze, our focus off of the Lord. Here, what's dominating Abraham's attention is the the conflict between their herdsmen. How are we going to take care of all of the assets that God's given us? This becomes a distraction to him. And it's not until Lot separates. It's not until he goes away that then Abraham hears from the Lord. And sometimes there are relationships in our lives that would keep us from hearing God's voice. An ungodly relationship, a sinful relationship, that will certainly help that will certainly hinder us from hearing the voice of God. No doubt one of the most painful things in life is the death of a friendship or a relationship. But sometimes those things have to come to an end for God's plan to be fulfilled in our lives. Sometimes there are just simply people And and relationships and friendships, activities that we've involved ourselves in that are hindering us from fulfilling the plan of God. And it's not until those things are removed from our lives that the plan of God begins to move forward. You know, life has a way of accumulating stuff, layers on our lives, layers of responsibility, layers of activity, layers of uh, patterns of life that sometimes aren't ungodly. They're just distractions. And sometimes we need to, to simplify our lives. Sometimes we need to strip some things away. Uh, Jesus in John 15 tells us that the Father will prune things out of our lives so that we can bear more fruit for him. Sometimes there are things in our life that are just sapping our energy and taking, they're, they're making us unfruitful in the kingdom of God, and so God will prune those things off of our lives. However, the pruning shears cut deep, and it always hurts when it happens. And here this conflict arises between Abraham and Lot, and they have to separate. And Abraham has to separate from Lot for the plan and purpose of God to be fulfilled in his life. And sometimes in our lives, we have to draw things to a close. Sometimes in our lives, there are seasons that that come to an end, and, and we need to move on. I know I'm speaking in vague generalities tonight, but I hope that in that, that the Holy Spirit might even be speaking to you about specific things, specific activities, specific pastimes, specific, maybe even relationships, relationships with people from the world, relationships with people from um, your, your life before Christ, where you've tried to influence them for the Lord, but When you're with them, you find that they are a greater influence on you, that the world is a greater influence on you than your influence for the Lord on them. Prayerfully, it might be time for that season to come to an end so that you can pursue the purpose of God for your life. And here we see after Abraham hears from God again in verse 18 that he builds another altar to the Lord These altars represent worship, the act of worship. Abraham was a worshiper. First he worshipped idols and now he worships and calls out upon the true and the living God. And he builds these altars in the place where God speaks to him. He sets up a reminder. This is where God spoke to me. And these altars served as a reminder of the promises that God had made to him. And so likewise, when we come and we worship God, when we come and we lift up our voice and we sing about the goodness of God and the things that God has done for us, we too are reminded of the promises that God has made to us as his people. And so worship becomes a vital, important part of the believer's life because it's through the act of worship that we are reminded It's through the act of worship that our memories are stirred, that our emotions are stirred. We're stirred on the promises that God has made to us as his people. Worshiping God serves as these altar-type moments where we're reminded of God and the encounters that we have had with him remind us of the word of God and the words that God has spoken to us. And we too, like Abraham, we too need to be reminded of what God has spoken to us. We need to be reminded even of the prophetic words that God has spoken in our lives. I would encourage you when, when you do feel like the Lord has spoken to you, to, to write it down somewhere, to put it somewhere, and to go back to those words, to go back to those promises, to go back and to remind yourselves of those things. That's what Abraham did when he fell. He went back to the Lord and reminded himself of the promises that God had made to him. So in conclusion tonight, if you find yourself in that wilderness, in the desert, in the middle of a test or a trial, I want you to know that God is with you. He promises never to leave you or forsake you. That God is not punishing you. Truly, Jesus bore all of our sin on the tree. The price for sin has been paid. So whatever we experience from God, it is never punishment. God may be disciplining us, but Christ paid all the price for our sin. And so anything that God is doing for us, he's never punishing us. He is always perfecting us, even in the tests and even in the trial. God is completing us, making us perfect, producing the nature of Christ in our lives. And so because of this, even in the desert seasons, even in the middle of the tests, we can face them with joy because we serve the God who is sovereign over every test, over every trial, over every calamity, over everything. And he is perfecting us. In it all. Amen. Amen. I invite you to stand with me tonight. Let's just go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for tonight, Lord, we thank you, Lord, though we may fall and fail, though it may be in a, even a big way, we, we see how Abraham He was not a perfect man, but he was a man who walked with you and in covenant with you. And likewise, you too have called us. Lord, you've called us out of the world. You've called us out of idolatry. You've you've promised blessing to us. Lord, help us to, even in the tests, even in the trials, to know that you have not stopped blessing us. To know that your hand is still with us. To know that you are always with us. And to live out our faith in the midst of those trials. Help us, God, to not live out of fear. But, Lord, to to go back to the places that you've spoken to us. To remind ourselves of your word and your promises. Which are yes and amen in the name of your son, Jesus. And, Lord, that we would live with that confidence. That we would not be overwhelmed with fear. Although the world is is so bogged down right now with, with so many fears and so many worries and so many anxieties, God, you are above it all. Lord, you hold you're the one who holds the world in your hands. Lord, you're the one who hangs the the stars in the sky. And Lord, you promise that even you will take care of the sparrows and that you will even take care of us. So help us, Lord, not to live in fear, but to trust in you and to live with that confidence that you are with us and that you will provide for us. Help us to not look to Egypt, to the world, to the world's way of thinking and the world's system to supply our needs. You're the God that fed the prophet from the brook. You're the God that the ravens brought the prophet food to. You're the God who multiplied the fishes and the loaves. You're the God of all abundance and all supply. And so Lord, we do not look to Egypt. We do not look to the world. We look to you knowing that you promise to meet all of our needs according to your riches in glory. Lord, we thank you for the tests that that show us where we need to grow in our faith. Lord, we thank you that you take us from glory to glory. Lord, we ask as your people that you would help us to live faithful to you and that we, through our faith in you, that we would put you on display to a watching world and that you would be glorified in our life of faith as we are not shaken when the world is shaken because our feet are planted in your kingdom a kingdom which can never be shaken. Help us to live with that unshakable confidence in you and in your kingdom as we worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen.